There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Samesh Dash. Samesh has his roots in Odisha, India. However, he was brought up in California and completed his degree in business administration from UC Berkeley in 2001, an MBA from Stanford University in 2010. He is the managing director and general partner of IVP, a well-known late-stage venture capital and growth equity firm. And Samesh was recognized by the New York Times and CB Insights as one of the top 100 venture capitalists and by GrowthCap as one of the top 40 under 40 growth investors. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Go Bears. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Go Bears. First off, you know, our listeners are always interested in our guest background. Can you tell us a little bit about your roots in Adisha and your origin story? Well, this is probably the first time someone's asked me to go to the the homeland and hit the roots race. So I was actually born in California. And I think my childhood was really this interesting juxtaposition where my parents came as Indian immigrants originally to Canada, actually, for graduate school, lived there in the 70s. And then right in the turn of that decade to 1980, President Reagan had been elected. They moved to California. My father took a role at IBM. Actually, he worked at Fireman's Fund Insurance Company and then went to IBM. But I was very lucky that I got to grow up in Silicon Valley when there was actually silicon being created. And I remember as a young kid driving down the 280 and seeing the original Apple building and seeing the little Apple that was bitten into in like 84, 85. And I didn't think much of it, Sean. To me, it was like, oh yeah, there's some cool company called Apple. And I remember when And I got to use my first Apple II. And of course, I got to see the Macintosh. That was like, oh, that company that we drive by to see (laughs) our uncle is producing this thing? Wow, this is kind of cool. So because my father worked at IBM, I think I was exposed to technology at a young age in Silicon Valley. And my parents were Indian immigrants. And a lot of our family friends were people who had originally gone to IIT or other engineering schools in India and then come for graduate school at Cal or Stanford or Davis. California and then stayed here. Many of them worked at Intel in the semiconductor world. And my father was sort of a rebel in that he worked, his background was more in software engineering. So he worked at IBM and eventually Oracle. I got to see firsthand Silicon Valley and really got to see cycles of innovation and and how it affected different generations. But then I would go back to India every 12 to 18 months from the age of one. Yeah. And I went back not only to India, but to Orissa, where my parents are from. For those who don't know, India's got, I think, about 40 states now recognized. And Orissa's traditionally been sort of on the bottom of the economic ladder. It's got one of the lowest literacy rates. It's a state that's got amazing natural resources, especially when I was growing up in the 80s. I had a pretty high poverty rate and wasn't as developed. So I had this interesting juxtaposition where I was sitting here as you know the son of immigrants, parents worked in tech in Silicon Valley. And then I would go back where my own cousins, my first cousins, would have power outages for three to four hours a day in the sweltering heat. And there wouldn't be things that we take so much for granted, like running water, you know, basic needs in terms of sanitation guidelines around food and health. Yeah. You know, a lot of that wasn't there. And yet I didn't really care. Like, because I went at a young age, I just knew them as my uncles and my aunts and my (laughs) cousins and my grandparents. And I actually looked forward so much to those trips. I would always cry when I would come home and all the family would cry. And it would just be like this amazing connection that I had. And I learned so much about Indian culture just by spending so much time there as a kid. I always Mm -hmm. embraced my duality as an Indian American. I would be watching Bollywood movies and listening to Indian music and Bhangra, but also (laughs) grew up a diehard Warriors and Niners fan and listened to hip hop and rock. And so... I was thinking about this the other day. I think Indian culture is pretty multicultural in itself and polytheistic. My parents are Hindu. There's many different languages and cultures and subcultures. So there was never this, you have to choose this or that for me. It was like, I just want that, that, and that, you know, and I would just start to continue to accumulate interests and passions. Yeah. And so I grew up in South San Jose. I went to Leland High School. And then for me, as a Bay Area kid, 
there were really two schools that were sort of always aspirational. One was Cal and one was Stanford. I guess I was lucky to go to both at different points in my life. I like the order <laughs> I went where I got to be a Cal undergrad. And for me, I was the first person in my family to go to a US undergraduate institution. And my parents had come for graduate school, but that was a new experience. And then my brother followed and many cousins after that. But it was really special for me. Cal is always a very special place because it really gave me that opportunity my parents came from, which was education. And that is the theme that even today in immigration, I think people sometimes don't think enough about. In all the heated debate about immigration, people forget that a lot of people come here for our system, our educational system. And it's not so that they could drain the United States' resources and immediately go back. My dad came in 1969 and never went back. And I think he built his entire life and family as my mom did and so many others I know did. In this country, I always joke that we're the happily highest taxpaying bracket, <laughs> Indian Americans <laughs> in the Bay Area. And that is, you know, capitalistic patriotism in a lot of ways too. Yeah. So I think that's a very special thing. And I just feel very, really, really lucky that I got to be a part of that by virtue of just being born here and to amazing parents. A couple of things that I want to unpack from that story. One is very early on, you mentioned Reagan. And, <laughs> you know, I recently became a U.S. citizen in 2018. I moved here in 92, but... Congratulations. For part laziness reasons, part, you know, we travel to China a lot, similarly with you. Yeah. I just never got around to changing citizenship until uh, after Trump. I thought, you know, it's time. I need a vote. <laughs> <laughs> So I actually got to participate in my first elections last year. It was amazing. Mm. But speaking of Ronald Reagan, I remember one of the speeches that he gave around how this is the only country in the world that you can come to and call yourself an American after staying here for 10 years. There's nowhere else that you'll go, right? You can't go to Brazil or Japan or India, live there for 10 years like me and call myself an Indian, right? It just wouldn't work that way. Yeah. And that's a very interesting fact about the United States. This thought that was really neat. And the second thing that I definitely relate with you on is, so I know your roots are in Eastern India, right? Yes. So I, I come from China, similar with India. When people ask me, you know, oh, you're from China, you're from India. I always ask what well, part of India or China. It's, these are big countries, right? They're, right? Like you said, they're so multicultural, yes. so many languages oh and backgrounds, cuisines, just everything north and south, east and west is completely different. And I always ask this question because I really want to know where they're from. And it so happens, I actually come from a province in China, southwest, called Guizhou, right next to Yunnan, Sichuan, where the spicy mm -hmm. food is. And that's like the second poorest province in mm -hmm. our country. I definitely can relate to your story. Going back, it's this dichotomy of, wow, we have everything here and there. There was barely anything, but didn't matter. You know, I, I loved it. Yeah, it was interesting. I learned years later when I joined IVP, our founder, Reed Dennis, who's alive today, worked closely with former President Reagan when he was governor of California. And he did a lot around getting pension funds to be able to invest in the asset class. He wrote a very famous editorial, Ronald Reagan did, before he ran for president, about venture capital as a creator of economic growth and was a big advocate for the reforms that led to this industry actually being created. I don't think enough credit is given to him. Mm -hmm. And the group of people that worked with him to make that happen in the mid-70s, this was a cottage industry. But if you actually look at the text of Reagan when he was up and coming in California politics and then early in his tenure in national politics, he is what we would describe today as a moderate. Mm -hmm. You look at sort of his speeches and you look at his orientation and it was essentially in the middle. And that day it was obviously not quite as moderate, but it was in the middle of being fiscally conservative and in many aspects, not all, socially liberal. And I think immigration was something he did actually really focus on his team that was around him, whether it was Jim Baker, George Schultz, and the people from that school like Condi Rice and others, Steve Hadley. I think many of them carried that torch and tradition on where you could be a fiscal conservative and believe in sound immigration policy. Yeah, And it's just a really absurd thing. I, I was involved about a decade ago in immigration reform debates in DC and in California. And it was just ridiculous to me as I dug in to see how much people actually agreed that immigration was such a catalyzing force of this country and the heritage of the United States. And yet how politicized the debate had become even before Trump and all of that. So I think the stories that you have, Sean, or I have are the things that can actually sway public opinion more than just the policy or just the talking heads on cable television. And I wish there was more 
discourse about that. Mm -hmm. Because I think once people realize how much more similar we all are than different, I think the racism we're seeing, the xenophobia naturally begins to ebb. Yeah. And I think with this kind of trigger happy or short attention span, you know, on demand, instant everything society that we live in, people don't take the time to actually have discourse. And I think that's why these platforms like podcasting, where they are long segments, they add a lot more color and perspective to the people that we have, not only in this country, but around the world. There's a formative book I read in college. It was by just Nye from the Kennedy School. And he talks about this concept of soft power, mm -hmm. which is everyone thinks American influence was thought to be defined by hard power, which is weaponry, machinery, arms, hard tech, policy, centralized control. But actually, if you look at the Middle East and you look at countries that have very different governments, the reason America stayed so popular for many decades was because of soft power. It was actually sports and music and MTV and all kinds of things that America represented and created, the creative community created, that led to this being an aspirational place. And that always stuck to me, which is even as a kid growing up here, I grew up seeing a lot of things around. It was more just ignorance about Indian culture, as I'm sure you saw, Sean, with Chinese culture. But once you expose people to it, I mean, who doesn't want to go to like a big Indian wedding and exactly. have yep. a great Indian meal? <laughs> and I mean, it's hard to not like certain things or have spicy Sichuan cuisine. Like, yeah, it's not that controversial when you get down to yeah. it. It's just fear from the unknown. Absolutely. Well, coming back to you, you went to high school, went to Berkeley, went to Stanford. Yeah. In between, I'm sure you did a lot of things. How did you become a venture capitalist? Well, it goes back to Berkeley as well. I was there from 97 to 2001. I started pre-med, like most good Chinese and Indian kids at Cal. <laughs> but I was interested always in the humanities. I did. I loved English and history and foreign languages and rhetoric and all these sorts of things in high school. And I continued those interests with my courses I chose to take in college. But I remember taking a few econ classes early on. And we were lucky that when we were at Cal, Laura Tyson was dean who had just come off the Clinton administration. Janet Yellen actually taught our econ class. Christina Romer was at Cal. So it was just a, looking back, I don't think I even appreciated just like how illustrious the faculty was at Cal. Yeah. But I had the chance to sit in on some of those seminars and courses at a young age. And I learned about the Haas business program. It was still relatively new and certainly undermarketed versus what it is today. And I thought, well, let me just apply. Maybe it might be a nice thing to do besides pursuing a degree in molecular cell biology. And I got in and I did an internship that summer at Charles Schwab. And it was really unique for me because I'd never been in a professional workplace really before. It was a structured internship program. And I met kids from Penn and Stanford and UCLA. And I said, oh, this is kind of fun. Like I found I enjoyed not just the academic side of business, but the practical side, actually talking to people, working on projects, collaborating. So I said, let me go down this path. I did a year-long co-op at Sybase, which was a very another big career moment for me. Sybase, for those who don't know, was a company started by Berkeley faculty and alumni, Bob Epstein, and was in Emeryville at the time. They were going through a really tough time. They were one of the hot relational database companies in the mid-80s, along with Informix and Ingress and Oracle. Yeah. By the time I got there in 99, Oracle had basically run away with what was considered to be products at that point not quite as great or pure as Sybase, but certainly much better distribution, go-to-market and, and marketing. And so obviously now, like Sybase is no longer relevant in the database world. I have to ask, did you know Manish? Did you ever run into Manish Chandra? Oh, uh, I didn't actually know he was at Sybase, but... Uh, yeah, he was, he was at Sybase during those years. I didn't know that. I may have, but I was like 19 and probably not paying attention. <laughs> but I, I did get a chance to see Bob Epstein, who was the first founder I got a chance to really shadow and see. And then I was very lucky in that John Chen came in as the new CEO the year I was there. And I learned a couple of things, which is like the importance of great leadership. I saw how John was sort of building coalitions with these kind of little things like Friday happy hours, celebrating birthdays, and then how hard turnarounds were. Sybase was a turnaround at that point, And boy, you could just feel it walking around. Yeah. Everywhere else in Silicon Valley, it was like the heyday of the dot-com movement. Yeah. And Sybase just felt like the walking dead a bit. And I realized <laughs> about myself, like, I'm not a turnaround person. I don't, I'm not enjoying yeah. this. So to this day, I enjoy growth more than turnarounds. It takes, like John is probably one of the best turnaround CEOs I've ever seen. But 
it takes a different type of skill set to do that and private equity and buyouts really well right. versus be venture growth oriented. And then I, as was the summer of 2000, my last year before I graduated, I did an internship at a company called hellobrain.com. It was a B2B marketplace that was trying to essentially say, if you want to do a project, an engineering project, we will find developers around the world who could bid to do that project for you because you don't have enough engineers in your own company. And then you pay them and we take a cut. Great idea. It's basically the idea of exchanges and outsourcing. Yeah, It was literally over 20 years ago. Challenge was a lot of the companies figured out that, wait a minute, once we meet these great developers sitting in India or China or the Philippines, we can just keep doing projects and we need to keep going back to Hello Braid. So the company yeah. lost its ability to have a resonant take rate yeah. as the market maker. And because of that, they lost leverage and they overhired. It was sort of a classic hyper growth to flame out story quickly. But ironically, like it was a venture funded company. So Excel and Redpoint, which had just formed and was a spin out of IVP, a firm I joined years later, were investors. So that was my first exposure to VC. The other thing that was really formative for me, Sean, was I can remember it like it was yesterday. Laura Tyson, because of just who she is and her network, would invite these amazing speakers to campus. And it was sort of a great time to be a fly in the wall in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I remember sitting and hearing Robert Rubin, Alan Greenspan, all these uh, Jim Wolfenson from the World Bank. And then one moment that really stuck out to me was I was sort of finishing, I think, accounting class walking near the auditorium and a guy asked me for a quarter <laughs> and he was on crutches. And I said, okay. And I had a quarter and he said, thank you so much. He's like, I can't repay you, but I'm giving a talk if you want to come and listen in the auditorium on you know venture capital. I said, okay. And it was John Doerr sitting in that room and listening to John present and do this talk. And he had just gotten through the Netscape IPO, the Amazon IPO, and was talking about Google. I mean, he had just funded the Series A of this exciting new search company out of Stanford and how they had broken all rules to do it internally in terms of valuation and speed. And obviously now in hindsight, it seems like, wow, could you imagine getting 17% of Google today for like $8 million <laughs> or something? But that was when I said, this is such a unique career path where you get to work after you invest collaboratively with these founders yeah. and their teams. And I always liked this idea of, one plus one equals three. Can you help catalyze others? Can you be the quiet but influential force behind that enables founders to get to their potential or to their promised land? I right. think, and that formed even back then as like a keen interest. And, and then I realized it's pretty much impossible to get hired into venture capital right out of undergrad. <laughs> so <laughs> yep. I took all kinds of interesting routes to get there. But the thing that was just to give you a sense of the times, investment banks were doing really well. It was the heyday of the tech IPOs in 2000. So I went through a process my senior year, realizing I don't want to work at a startup right out of school and talked to a couple of banks, talked to a couple of consulting firms. And I got actually recruited by Accenture in their strategy group. It was all set to start. And then the dot-com bust started. They missed earnings and they deferred all of us for a year. And at the time I thought, oh, this is my life is over. I'm deferred for a year. I'm going to be behind. And all my peers are going to be starting their jobs at Bain and McKinsey and Goldman. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me, totally accidentally, because I thought about what I wanted to do and decided I wanted to go back to India and find a way to work and live in India for a year, thinking it would just be a great chance for me to like spend more time with my extended family, understand India better, get international work experience. And mm. I got to go work for Sony. In India, Sony is, we know it more as an electronics business in the United States, but in India, they actually run the second, at the time, the second largest cable network behind Star, which was oh, wow. owned by Rupert Murdoch. And I got to go there and be kind of the young gun hired to do business development and corporate development and got to work with the CEO directly. And the projects ranged from like the acquisition of the ICC World Cup cricket rights. And this is for someone who like, I never grew up playing cricket or really watching cricket. Yeah, I learned yeah, everything yeah. about cricket. India is like obsessed with cricket, as you probably know. Yep to like acquiring a bunch of digital assets and doing an online film festival in 2002, to doing a bigger project on television rights and sort of cash flow modeling. And finally, my last project, which was really interesting, was India had gotten its first nominee to the foreign film category ever. Or I think it was like the second ever. It was the first in like 40 years. And it was a movie called Lagan. And it was about, ironically, a group of Indian villagers who learned how to play cricket so that they could beat the British out of their village. <laughs> And the last project I had was Sony owned the rights, the international distribution rights, and it got nominated. And so 
there was this interesting dilemma where my boss, Kunal, said, hey, the guy who is starring in this movie and produced this movie is like the Tom Hanks of India. His name is Amir Khan. And he's going to be in LA for eight weeks trying to do an Oscar campaign. And the Sony LA team doesn't know who he is and how important he is to me. And they're not going to resources appropriately. So can you just go out there and like help with this Oscar campaign? And I was like, okay. And so I, I moved and lived in the Culver Hotel and worked on this Oscar campaign. And it was in some ways the culmination of my own familiarity with both cultures back to where we started, Sean. Yeah. I grew up obviously in the US. I still had friends, a lot of friends in LA who went to Cal or were at UCLA, went to my high school. And yet I also had been familiar with India and grew up watching Indian content. So it was a really great experience. The movie actually didn't win, but I learned a lot through that experience. And then came back to the Bay Area, made an attempt to do a incubator that kind of was YC-like and it's thought it was before YC came out. Mm -hmm. Didn't work, but learned a lot in failure that was in some ways more meaningful than some of the success stories. Mm. And then ended up actually in investment banking, working for CSFB Tech, which was run by Frank Quattrone and George Boutros, now who run Catalyst. And got a real education about corporate finance in Silicon Valley. And then that's how I met IVP. I was working with a few companies that IVP was a major investor in, including Aspect Communications and Concur and Polycom and Netflix. I had a chance to meet my partner, Norm Fogelsong. He said, hey, we just raised a dedicated thing called a growth fund. We don't do early stage anymore. Do you want to come on? We're going to hire a senior analyst. And this was February of 05. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And so that's how it all started. That's amazing. What prompted the MBA that you were already in venture capital? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. And it wasn't for me as logical a step as it was for others in my class. I didn't know, Sean, admittedly, if venture was the right fit for me when I got in. I mm-hmm. certainly had interest in it, but I didn't know if I'd be any good at it. <laughs> I think I'm decent after 16 years, but it's still hard to know sometimes. Yeah, It's like the reality check that hits you every day when you see the ups and downs is something else. I realized though, when I interviewed with a few firms that for me, growth was really interesting because I think you can utilize this analytical framework I learned through being a student at Berkeley and working in Corp Dev at Sony, and especially through the investment banking training I had. But it was still venture. I think a lot of people thought growth was you plug in numbers in a spreadsheet and it pops out the answer. But when I started working in IVP, I realized how much time was being spent on the team Mm. and on the culture and on the market and on the strategic framework for the business model versus just the numbers. And that was, to me, much more exciting than just a number-crunching exercise. So... I found I loved the business. I loved the firm. I loved the people and the culture that had been built over the 20 years, 25 years before I got there and had been sustained and even strengthened over multiple generational transitions. And I wasn't sure about if I should go to business school or not. So I decided to apply. And I really, in my mind, thought, okay, if I get into Stanford, it's something I should think deeply about. And you know, to give my partnership a lot of credit, they encouraged me to go because I had been fixated on, is this a near-term catalyst to my career? And what I learned from talking to my partners who had been or alumni is, if you can find 10 to 15 meaningful friendships in this two-year period, that is worth everything and more. Because in life, it's so difficult to be in an environment that actually creates meaningful, lasting friendships and relationships And I sort of thought, okay, if I could, I have my college friends, my high school friends, if I could meet some amazing people, that's probably worth it. Yeah. I actually found that like a lot of people say networking is the reason to go to business school. I didn't find that to be the case for myself because in venture, being from Cal, growing up in Silicon Valley, you do meet a lot of people. And the word networking to me has a quantity kind of component to it. And I found that it was less important for me to just meet everybody. But I found that in the meaningful relationships I had with a subset of my class with members of the faculty, lecturers. That just meant the world to me. And I also knew in my mind that I wanted to come back to venture. I did have the chance to be a part of a few startups, including one called Identified that was eventually acquired by Workday. And the two founders that started Base 10 and Fifth Wall so have gone on to do really amazing things. And we continue to talk all the time. I think those entrepreneurial experiences were great for me to realize that I love startups but I am much better probably as an investor, <laughs> co-founder, scaler. I think everybody at some point or another has to admit that they think, well, what would it be like to be an operator? So I gave it a shot. Yeah. And I learned I was decent at a couple of things, but pretty bad at others. And so I have the world of respect. It certainly builds way more empathy 
when you try to go through it and you fail multiple times a day on multiple dimensions, you realize how hard it is. I think I had taken some of that for granted in my early years adventure. When I came back after business school, I just was like in awe of the fact that some of these companies could get to where they're going. I just, it's so freaking hard <laughs> to try to do it yourself. I want to ask you a question about something that you had briefly mentioned earlier. Hearing how you're talking about growth, investing, about teams, culture, to you, how does that differentiate from turnarounds? Because isn't that typically the problems in those distressed situations? It depends on the market. What I saw at Sybase, for example, was a complete reboot of the strategy. At that time, they had to look into the tools business, different distribution deals to even stay relevant as they were losing share rapidly to Oracle mm. and IBM and others in the space. Growth is more about optimizing for a market evolving or the future, almost by definition in, in hyperscale. So growth could be anything from like growing 1% to growing 1,000%, right? And depending on the scale, what's really important to ask is what growth is sustainable versus ephemeral, like just comes and goes. Yeah. So I would say a lot of the work we do is to say, okay, what part of this growth is sustainable? And then are you growing in the right way to create shareholder value for everybody involved not with like the lens of the next quarter or two, but the next three years, five years, 10 years. And you do see certain patterns emerge in certain markets. We've done a lot of work in enterprise software and consumer and mobile internet and more recently digital health. And you can see certain things emerge as common themes, but even 16 years in, the markets are so dynamic, Sean, they change so much that it's actually collaborating with founders to ask the right questions together hmm. versus saying, I got the answers. I'm going to tell you what to do. That does not work. There's an old phrase that my professor, Mark Leslie, said that I always go back to, which is, and I tell this to everyone, every founder I work with, if you don't listen to your board, you may get fired. But if you listen to your board, you will get fired. <laughs> I think the best investors that I've had the privilege of working with are fantastic sounding boards. They're measured. Yeah in the quantity of the comments they make, they're really supportive and they have a nice way of figuring out each founder's idiosyncrasies and knowing how and when to have those conversations. That's the art. It's not a one-size-fits-all strategy. You can't be the same mode with everybody. Some founders respond better to sort of in-person, rapid, whiteboarding iterations. Some are better kind of in a much more methodical, I'm going to send you questions, let's think about it together in the talk. And that's fun for me. I, again, I found as a young kid going to India made me realize like there's just so many personality types in my own family. And I was always a bit of a chameleon and loved to adapt to new environments. That really helped me almost more than anything in venture. Yeah. Different styles of different founders and different stages and different geos. And even within my partnership, different styles. And a lot of it is consensus building with my firm saying, okay, let's do this. And some of my partners are just better talking one-on-one -on -one live. Some are better over email. And I've figured it all out. Not all of it, but most of it in over 16 years. I think there's some fundamental differences in just the like what you need to do. I also think what's really important is most turnarounds, especially private equity, a sponsor typically has majority control, mm -hmm. right? So it's a very different orientation if you own more than 51% of the outstanding shares. Mm. At that point, you are kind of helping control your own destiny. Yeah, yeah. In venture, even if you're a Series A investor and you've got an amazing equity ownership to start with and you're in the 20-25%, you're still a minority shareholder. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have control. Your job is to be a sounding board and an amplifier to management and to build consensus with the other directors. And so I think a lot of problems happened in venture in the 2000s when people thought, I own 5%. This is my company. I'm going to tell you what to do. That's usually where things go wrong. I think for us, we're just so lucky to partner with these amazing founders. We had last week, it was exactly a week ago, the IPO of Coinbase, which was a remarkable event for the firm. And just this morning, the IPO of UiPath, which is another amazing company in the enterprise software space and the RPA space. And we were certainly helpful and there was a lot of work that went in, but all the credit is the amazing management teams and the founders of those companies. Absolutely. I do have this burning question of, why did John Doerr need that quarter? <laughs> <laughs> I actually asked him this when I met him, maybe it was 10 years later or something. We actually had a chance to work with John and his amazing team at Kleiner on a number of co-investments and a number of my partners have known him for many, many decades. Apparently, he, he didn't tell me who he was calling, but he was using a payphone. He was covering his mouth, which I also found interesting. <laughs> and it was when the mobile phones kind of looked like 
bricks, you know? Yep. Yep. And I'm not, I think he probably worried he wasn't on a secure line. I think he said something like that, but <laughs> another thing I feel very lucky I was able to do early is get to be on a number of boards and interact with some of the stalwart investors of our industry. Mm-hmm. And I always tried to see what was like the superpower of each of them and see if like you can adapt some of that. With John, what I thought was just so amazing is his ability to tell a really compelling narrative. Like he would always within a few minutes just tell you this compelling narrative about the company and where it's going that was so memorable. And sometimes you could hear a whole pitch from another VC about why they're excited about a company, not remember anything. And then John in 30 seconds would give you a couple things that you're like, I still remember today from the companies he talked about. And so part of venture more than ever now is storytelling. Yeah. It's storytelling to the entrepreneur about who you are as an individual or as a firm and why you could be a great partner to them, especially for competitive rounds. It's telling the story of the company to outside stakeholders, whether it's trying to recruit executives or board members, trying to help with customer acquisition, trying to help with the public market story. I mean, a lot of what you do is become in some sense an evangelist for these companies. And mm-hmm. I think in all these years, John's superpower is still just being able to tell such a fantastic abbreviated version of the company's kind of story that really resonates with the audience. I want to transition a little bit into your investments in the mental health space. Can you talk a little bit about that? I've had an interest in the mental health arena for well over a decade now. And frankly, I mean, a lot of this also goes back a bit to Cal. I didn't have the lexicon back then to understand what it was like to go through those classic challenges of being a college student in a large public university that's high pressure mm-hmm. with a lot of type A people. Yeah. I didn't even know there was really a thing called mental health in the late 90s. I just wasn't as familiar with it. I can also say this to you, Sean, I think coming from immigrant families, it's not something you talk about with your parents. It's not something that's encouraged in your diaspora, your community. Therapy was not really viewed positively. And I actually lost a friend who I was close to at Cal, years after Cal. And in hindsight, I realized a lot of the signs were there in college of true mental health issues, along with addiction issues and a few other things. And in my friend circle, as we talked about that experience, I realized there's just so much unknown still around the mind and the connection between the mind and the body and behavior. Mm -hmm. And I was intellectually interested in it. I, of course, like most people, gone through my own spectrum of mental health issues throughout my life. And I think it got me personally very interested. And also from a business perspective, made me realize that with data basically being much more ubiquitous now and software being able to actually do things that's performative that was unable to be done in the analog world 20 years ago, this might be the time to look at the sector afresh. So I've made two investments and I've met about 50 companies over the last five years in this space. The first was a company called Thrive Global. It was started by Ariana Huffington, who's a very well-known author and entrepreneur, founder of the Huffington Post. She herself had gone through a situation where she hit a clear amount of fatigue in 2007 when she was running HuffPo and realized that sleep and sort of wellness are things that are stigmatized among entrepreneurs. People sort of celebrate in Silicon Valley the idea of being overworked and sleepless, which actually leads to, over time, negative consequences, not positive consequences for decision-making and company building. Right. And so I was really fascinated with the way she took on this problem when I met her in 2017. And the company today is a SaaS solution that basically sells to large enterprises a mental health dashboard. And it's a combination of content as well as notifications and behavioral recommendations to enable people to not just sleep better, but also look at upstream all the things they can do in their lives to be healthier and happier while increasing their productivity. Mm -hmm. I think the key thing for companies is they want a healthier employee population, but they also want it to be helping the bottom line. Research shows that if you have a healthier population, people who get sick less, deal less with depression, Mm. it actually leads to better company outcomes. It's just, it's like diversity. It's just better for the company as well. So that's unassailable right now. The second investment I made, which was just before the pandemic, was a company called Lyra Health. And the founder of that company, David Ebersman, is an incredible operator. He was CFO of Genentech and Facebook when they were both public companies. Had his own journey where he realized mental health was something he wanted to focus his career on. And Lyra's model is actually to provide a marketplace of therapists to employees of large enterprise companies. 
And it had incredible growth because what they found was so many large companies actually don't have therapists covered in health plans. Mm -hmm. And finding a therapist is hard. Having that therapist covered is hard. And it's interesting if you think, I remember he said something that resonated with me. He said, the fact that we can pretty quickly have vision, dental, and health cover, but not mental health just doesn't seem right. Yeah. It seems like that's something that's just as important, if not more important than those other three categories. And yeah. he set out on a quest to basically solve this problem, has built Lyra into a pretty amazing company. And then the pandemic hit. And what was amazing was the needs of people to get help actually increased, not decreased with the pandemic. And yet physically, you weren't able to go and see therapists. So they had built out a telemedicine platform that enabled you to do online coaching and therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. And also, most of the companies introduce it and provide it for their spouses and partners and children. Yeah. And so we have entire families of some of the large customers who are using Lyra as a platform to get help. And it's really amazing, especially because the spectrum is like some people need coaching and some people actually have more severe issues, especially during the pandemic that have been accentuated around suicidal thoughts, addiction, issues around abuse. And, and for those, you really need to have partnerships with specialist providers, whether it's at health systems like UCSF or Kaiser or Stanford. So it's been a really great journey. And I think this is still the early days of mental health startups. Yeah, I think one thing that's really important to me is the combination of great clinical outcomes, along with more community grassroots awareness and conversation. Yeah. You need to have both. You can't do one without the other. So both of these companies, they take slightly different approaches, have gone into this space. Really curious to hear what your thoughts are on Ginger as a Berkeley-founded <laughs> startup. I think it's fantastic. We got to visit them. <laughs> I will profess, I've only had a few interactions with them, but the founders are remarkable. And I think the vision is fantastic. I think they've done a great job of destigmatizing a lot of this stuff. They were early, but they really pushed nicely on this idea of coaching and therapy. And I think if I had to summarize what was the most impressive, they've made it relatively frictionless to do something as a newbie to kind of mental health and therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really fantastic. McKinsey published a report recently that shows a clear link between lifestyle diseases and mental health. So yeah. whether it's hypertension, diabetes, all the things that are really the silent killers of our population and don't get all the attention that other more non-lifestyle diseases get, I think solving this is going to be one of the big challenges and opportunities of the next decade. And I think coming out of the pandemic, I really think people are going to want to maintain some of the good that came out of this virtualized world, which is being able to like slow it down, think a little bit about what's important to them or not, and get the help they need. I think the reality is we're all seeing every day in the news examples of breakdowns in our public health infrastructure that are leading to some of these massive societal issues. And a lot of the stuff related to mass shootings and violence in communities, the root of it is actually community health and mental health. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the system hasn't modernized in the way that science has or that the private sector has. So I'm actually really bullish that entrepreneurs and startups and growth companies can make a real difference while doing it in conjunction with local, state, and federal governments. There's a couple of things there I want to unpack and revisit. And I'll start backwards. It's very interesting that you talk about, you know, when people ask me about violence against Asian Americans, I don't know why, and I don't mean to play down anything, but in my mind, I never jumped to fear. As an entrepreneurial mind, maybe it's just, you know, what is the problem here for us to solve, right? <laughs> because it's solvable. And first thing that I always think about is like, what are they going through? Why are they doing this? Asking kind of the classic two out of five whys. And one of the things that I recently read, it was an article talking about how there's a word for what we're all experiencing during COVID. And the word is languish. Mm -hmm. Lose or lack vitality, growing weak or feeble. And it's an effect of isolation. And I remember reading too that people can feel isolated in more ways than one. You can have physical, a lot of physical connection, but still have that mental isolation. And I thought it was really interesting we we're talking about kind of the Asian diaspora because some advisors recently were just telling me to look into Asian founders funds and to just tap into that. My co-founder, is uh, he's Indian, so to look into South Asian publications or publishers for PR. I just never thought to do that. 
why are we like that? Why don't we tap into our circles or our, our networks and our people? But there's something ingrained to just not do that. And similarly with mental health, to just not speak about it. Well, a couple things like we could talk about this for a long time, but <laughs> what's interesting to me is from the perspective of people who aren't as familiar with, let's say, South Asians or Chinese Americans, you're sort of put into this broad bucket of you're Indian, right? And I think you and I both talked about this. The th- interesting thing is India itself is such a aggregation of so many different religions and subcultures and languages and subcultures. Like I just, I think there's a very big difference. China's got the largest population in the world. There's going to be a very big difference to talking to someone who grew up agrarian in the Guangdong region versus someone who lives in an urban environment in Shanghai or Beijing. Yeah. They're Huge cultural differences I've seen in my friends, depending on sort of what paths your families followed, mm-hmm. whether it was in China, those that were Taiwanese American have a different orientation. So I think those are idiosyncrasies that, frankly, I blame the education system. I grew up in the Bay Area, which is pretty much as cosmopolitan as it gets in this country. And I remember the shock I, I had. I was very excited when I think it was my sophomore year, we were doing world history. And I said, oh, this is going to be great. I can talk about India and learn about China. In that nine-month course, I think we spent one week on India and one week on China. And the vast majority of it was skewed, the curriculum was skewed towards, you know, the heritage of Western Europe, right? Right, Because a lot of that comes from the education system being put together by those people that were immigrants from a certain part of the world. Yeah, And I just found it fascinating that my classmates came out of high school in the Bay Area not being able to point on a map, most parts of India or China, not knowing anybody who was prominent besides maybe Mahatma Gandhi. Or, yeah. And I think that is a failure of the system to do that. I look at my kids' generation and I'm much more optimistic because there's so many supplementary tools out there now, especially online, that enable your kid to learn about the rich history of Asia or Africa or Native American cultures even here. So I think part of that is just ignorance. Part of it is Hollywood also mm-hmm. always looks for the other as the villain. Yep. And so there's some good literature on this. In the 80s, it was sort of Russia. In the 90s, it was the Japanese cultures. And so if you grow up watching a ton of media, which everyone does, you have implicit biases that form. Yeah. And popular media needs to take more responsibility about that and not say, how did this happen? Well, I can tell you how it happened. Like $200 million blockbuster films that were action made created the quote other and many of them were people from our parts of the world right and then you don't celebrate those that are creative artists that make great movies and sort of honor them with oscars and golden globes and things like that so i think that's part of it i think the biggest thing though is we've always our communities have always tried to be the model immigrants think about our parents generation they came here with 10 to 15 dollars in their pocket literally most didn't come from affluent backgrounds back home they were the best of the best just to get a shot to come here at the bottom of the economic pole. And they didn't have any, they didn't have a lot of spread, as I call it, meaning they didn't have a lot of free time, extra cash, like godfathers and resources. And so those of us that grew up in those families, mm-hmm. you know, education was the focus. And it was sort of like you put your head down and you crank, which is such an amazing thing. That's why you see the the massive success of the South Asian community and the Asian American community. But it came with a price, and the price was. So much was unsaid, so much was not discussed. And that led, I think, to communities that really under-indexed on having the real conversations that are happening now. That makes it so special that our kids aren't going to have that. I want our children's generation to have therapists on their phone on speed dial that they can talk to. Because sometimes there's things you just can't say to your family and your siblings, yeah, your parents, your siblings. And I think actually our parents' generation will need it as well. Because what we don't understand at our age is the isolation and loneliness you talk about is amplified about 5X if you're older and more vulnerable as a population. And I've had conversations, I've seen many of my parents' friends get sick, pass away in the last year directly through COVID or COVID-related illnesses. And that's hard when you lose these relationships you built over 40 or 50 years and you can't even go to a funeral because of COVID protocols. So I'm a combination of sad and upset over sort of how how it's gotten to this. It's been happening forever. It's just there's more awareness on it now. I'm just such an optimist. People are good. People do want to do the right thing. The outpouring of support for the OPI community, which my firm and I individually have been a part of in the last few weeks has been amazing. And I do think political organizing is going to be the key. If you think about it, there's a lot to learn from Hispanic American communities. Organizations like the NAACP have helped, I think, make progress over decades, not weeks and months around policy, both federal and local. 
I think there will be the equivalence of those built for the South Asian community and for the Api community as a result of this. And I think if you could take the great resources and the energy and the dedication of immigrant communities, but going on Twitter and going on social media and expressing outrage is actually not going to solve the full problem. It's an important first step, but political action and collective action is the way to do it. And Berkeley has such a heritage of doing that from the inception of the university through the 60s. That's part of the reason I was so excited to be there. I think Cal will play a big role in this as well, given the rich heritage of integration between different racial and ethnic groups. Absolutely. So speaking of community, and you talk about community grassroots conversations, it just makes me think, you know, a lot of these mental health issues again, like I said, stem from isolation, right? Feeling alone, even when you're surrounded by people. It makes me wonder how social media and technology has driven us further into this and how now we're looking at, especially with compounded by COVID, how do we evaluate, how do we look at technology to climb out of that, to not continue going down that path? And this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the podcasting, because I think just hearing people's voices, hearing perspectives, is so important than just getting a five-second clip of something, hearing this 40-minute conversation. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts being in Silicon Valley, how we can tackle this. If you go back even into the earliest days of technology innovation, think about Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. There was a view on what is nuclear energy, how do you create certain sorts of things. But if you think about what happened not that long ago, Less than 100 years ago, in this very region that we celebrate innovation, we had internment camps for certain subpopulations. We had Pearl Harbor and Hiroshima. And it just shows you that there's always a balance between idealism, innovation, but also public goods and public protection. Because left unchecked, there's massive consequences for just the free market. And so there's always this seesaw, I think, of laissez-faire, leave it alone. Things will just kind of self-regulate to over-regulating and then ex-post trying to apply laws that should have been there a long time ago. I think we're right now kind of moving into a a period, especially nationally, of catch-up regulations. I think that's warranted. It'll probably have some adverse consequences where it'll go for kind of the symptom versus the disease. And there's going to be things like, oh, $100 billion companies shouldn't buy anything. Why? Right? You ask the first principle questions. I think what they're after is, not letting any company that's basically not government regulated have too much power. But then you're sort of not solving that by saying anything that happens to be valued over $100 billion can't make an acquisition. This is one of the proposals up there right now. So I would say you started with this. Audio is a really powerful thing. I think 15 months or so into the pandemic, I think we all see some benefits from slowing it down in terms of the amount of time we spent in rush hour or away from our children or our families. But Human interaction, I mean, friends, family, these are things that actually matter more than anything else. And so I'm really optimistic on the audio form factor. I think we're going to see new platforms emerge that feel a lot like iOS and Android did, that feel a lot like the original generation of internet companies did. And I think the amount of data and emotion that you can capture through audio is much larger than people realize. What we haven't done yet is made it searchable or curated or personalized. And so you can imagine that, you know, we're investors in Discord. We're obviously following what's going on at at Clubhouse. I think there's some amazing new platforms that are very innovative that are coming out. And we're in the early, early days. It's kind of like Web 1.0 in terms of audio. And I don't think it's going to be Google, Amazon. They will acquire and certainly launch their own Clubhouse killers and Discord killers. But I think there's going to be independent companies that do it differently. And I think these founders today that I talk to don't want to just follow the path of their predecessors from the social media companies. They want to do it differently. They have to do it differently. I do think that there's going to be so much great content created. And I think people now are at a point where it's not as much about an advertising business that maximizes and monetizes reach. Mm -hmm. It's more about deeper, meaningful engagement when there's so many distractions on your time. And subscription models enable you to do that in some ways. So I see that as being much more of the business model of the future. I think 10 years from now, there's going to be multiple $500 billion to trillion market cap companies that are subscription-based, audio-centric models. And I think you combine that with IoT, sensors, machine learning, AI, and it's pretty much limitless what could end up happening. 
Yeah. I was just reading about Neva the other day. Amazing company. Sri Ramaswamy is one of the most intelligent right. <laughs> entrepreneurs we've met and a legendary person. He's rethinking search. Yeah. This is from the guy who built a lot of it at Google. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Wrapping up questions are these fire round questions called, what are some books that you're reading recently? Oh. Or some content? Yeah, I got some good ones. So I just started reading No Rules Rules. It's about Netflix by Reed Hastings, which I thought was really good. I read a great book that Eric Schmidt co-wrote on Bill Campbell. I think it's called Billion Dollar Coach or Trillion Dollar Coach. I can't remember. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But that was a very formative one for me because I had the opportunity to meet Bill a few times. I did not work with him closely, which is a huge regret. But I do work with a number of entrepreneurs who had been mentored by him. And just, I think, watching him influence so many amazing companies along the way in his own understated, quiet, behind-the-scenes way kind of goes in the face of a lot of the institutionalization of investing. And so I, I took a lot from that around, how do you think about organizational design, culture, catalyzing teams? How do you deliver feedback? And I just think he really was one of a kind and left too soon. And I think his legacy is intact with many of the founders that he mentored, like Ben Horowitz and Dick Coslo and Larry Page and Sergey Brin and others. But I think there's a lot of learnings from that that I'm trying to apply in board conversations and CEO interactions. So that was really good. And then I started reading some fiction actually last summer during this pandemic, which I hadn't done in like 20 years. <laughs> I read some good Indian American authors. This one book by Madhuri Vijay, which was really good about Kashmir, which was fantastic. And so one of my regrets is I haven't been able to read more with a young family and with a crazy work schedule. But that's kind of my dream is like enabling myself to have the time to read a great book every week would be fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Samesh, look forward to having you on again sometime soon. Yeah, Sean, thank you for doing this. Like, I really wish when I was a student or a recent alum that I had a chance to like listen to podcasts and hear people's stories. I think the work you're doing is going to have posterity and people are going to listen to it for decades to come. And I mean, this is the kind of stuff that certainly builds ecosystems. So I'm just really glad you're taking so much of your time to do this. And I think a huge debt of gratitude is owed to you by everybody from the Cal community. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website, haaspodcast.org, that's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears.